in a time of congregational prayer. Now, this is not a time, as we say here often, where you could catch a nap, quick, quick doze, um, not pay attention to what the pastor is saying, which is probably most of the time in the service anyway. No, this is a time where we gather together this incredible opportunity that God has given us, where he's, for, in his incredible plan, he said that it is his will, that he's ordained it to accomplish his will through our prayers. So the prayer is God's ordained method of accomplishing his will. So I want you guys to hear this, and this is so incredible, that for some strange reason, God moves through the prayer of his people. That's his ordained method of moving. That he ordained it to be, that he wants to move in response and in light of our prayers. And one of the things that we believe here and we're praying for over and over again is we pray for those who do not know the good news of the gospel. Those who have not accepted the good news of the gospel to, to know that they are known, that they can be loved, and that they're called to incredible purpose. We pray often for those who have not tasted and seen that God is good. What can I tell you? There's one lady in particular that's been prayed for over and over again by people in our church for a, a few years now. And this past week, I get to so happily pronounce and exclaim that she's accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. She's now pronounced faith in him. She says she believes in her heart and her mind that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that he died in her place, and she is now a beloved child of his. So guys, can I just, I'm going to bring up Parisa up here. Parisa, will you kind of come up here? Happy for you, Parisa. So, Parisa moved here how long ago, Parisa? Uh, three, three years ago from Iran. Iran. And she's been, since she's been here, we've had people praying for her and loving her and, and her beautiful children, because they're beautiful children. And her, her wonderful husband. I mean, he's beautiful too, but the children are more beautiful. But just to, to be up here and be able to say, guys, how good is it to see God move? You know, the Bible talks about even one lost sheep, even one lost coin, that the heavens are celebrating. Can I tell you that our hearts are elated because the gospel, the good news, has penetrated this beautiful heart, and we've had the privilege and honor of being able to pray for her and to see God's will accomplished. So we, we just continue to pray for you and your family, and we're going to pray right now. But as we pray for Parisa, as she walks and as she grows in her faith and relationship, we're going to pray for those who don't know. And we're going to keep on praying for those who God has placed in our lives so that we have the courage and the desire to continue to share the gospel. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Oh, man, do we thank you. God, thank you for allowing us to get to know this beautiful family. God, for allowing us to know Parisa and this incredible heart. Thank you for taking her heart of stone and giving her a heart of flesh. Thank you for passionately pursuing her. Thank you for the people you've placed in her lives to share the gospel with her. And thank you that she now knows that she is a beloved daughter. That nothing can ever take that away from her. That is, she is yours and there's no power on earth or in heaven or anywhere else that can separate her from your love. That no longer does she have to worry about how clean she is before you. But because of the work of Jesus Christ, she is spotless. She is pure before a righteous God. Thank you for, for pursuing her and for knowing her and for loving her. Thank you for her new identity as a beloved daughter. And I pray for those who do not know. 
for those you've placed in our lives, God, whether it's through work or through, um, God, through community, through neighborhoods, wherever it may be, God, I pray for those that, who do not know. God, will you embolden us? Will you give us the passion to share the gospel with them? Will you capture their hearts? God, will you show them how real and how incredible you are? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Felisa. Hear the word of the Lord from uh, the passage today, which is Mark 11, 12 through 19. Then you can follow along in, uh, in your Bibles or on the screen. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again, eat fruit <coughs> from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have turned it, you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowds or all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. This is the word of God. It's good to go. So we're backtracking in the book of Mark. Because of Easter, we skipped ahead to the passion, to the story of the crucifixion and resurrection. But now we're going backtracking back into the Mark, the areas that we kind of had to skip over for where we were at in the Bible. Mainly because there are a few more encounters that I want us to really dive into. I want us to really look at. And I pray that this shapes you and comes alive in us. That the scripture captures and gets a hold of you. That you look into this text and see God's purpose for us right now. And this is incredible stuff. I've entitled my sermon, Jesus Flips Out. You guys get it? Jesus Flips Out? Nobody? Kind of? A little bit? I laughed so hard to myself at that title. So I'm just saying, I thoroughly enjoy this title. And, and I, I enjoy it because Jesus is guess it, flipping tables and him getting upset. And it isn't the only reason, though, that I entitled that Jesus flips out. Because he gets upset, so he flips out, and he flips tables. But I called it this title because Jesus flips religion and everything else. He does a complete flip. And I want you to see this in the text. Starting in verse 12, I'll put it on the screen here. Starting in verse 12, I'm sorry, Paul. I, I do that to him all the time. Verse 12 here. I'm going to make him stay there. I'm sorry, Paul. Second verse 12, it says, On the following day, they, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, in this very first verse, Mark is clearly tying this incident with a triumphal entry that happened here in Mark chapter 11 at the very beginning. So for those of you who are here, if you guys remember, that I made a profession, I said the triumphal entry that occurred with the whole, on Palm Sunday with the palm branches happened right before this text. But if you remember correctly, what did I say about the triumphal entry? Who remembers? I said, how many times did he go in, actually? 
three. Right? It actually says he goes in, comes out, goes in, comes out, right? But we only think about it one time. But then I said I tied into those three entrances into three offices of, of the anointed one. What were those three offices? That's right. Major points right there. <laughs> I tied into three entries of Jesus into the Jerusalem with the idea of the three offices of the anointed one, which was king, priest, and prophet. So this is very much tying into that whole concept. So this is tying into this idea of Jesus tying into the triumphal entry. This use of Bethany, this use of following day. Mark is clearly trying to show that both chronologically and geographically, this is, this is follow-up of this triumphal entry. He's shown that these acts are messianic, and it's shown that Jesus is shown his character in these offices, in this text. So we have here one of the weirdest doesn't make sense stories of the Bible, in, in my opinion. It's just it's weird. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it's not as weird as like a talking donkey or as a man using a jawbone of an animal to kill hundreds of people. But it's, it's up there because it doesn't make sense. Who was it? Erica today was sharing with me that she loves this text because it was a book called Life of Pi. And in the book called Life of Pi, this guy opens up this text, reads it. It doesn't make any sense to him. I'm like, who is this Jesus? doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard of. And it's true for me, too. When you read this text and you hear it, you're sitting here and you're like, who is this guy? This is not the Jesus I've kind of heard. It says here, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. When I read this text, he almost comes across as a petulant child, doesn't he? I mean, when you first read it, at first glance, when you read this, and I know that sounds blasphemous, you guys are like, what did you just say? Jesus would be okay with this, I think. Jesus comes across as a petulant child. And when I first read this, he's looking, he goes to the fig tree, and he knows it's not the season for figs, but actuality, what he's looking for is this little kind of bud, they call it early fig or pagum. Edible, but not very tasty. And this is what happened. This is the, kind of the off-season of the fig tree, was this kind of early bud, called an early fig. And that's what he's looking for. A fruitful tree would be bearing these early buds, early figs. And he's going through, but when he didn't find anything, Jesus curses the tree. It just sounds kind of petty, doesn't it? You don't have any fruit? Oh, I hate you. No more. I curse you. It seems weird. It seems out of place at first glance. But what I want you to see here is this. Jesus is not cursing the tree out of anger, but as a planned symbolic action. A New Testament scholar, David Garland, says this. This is not about an unfruitful tree, but about the temple that is coming up. The word season is not the botanical term for the growing season, but the religious term found in chapter 1, denoting the time of the kingdom of God. The unfruitful tree symbolizes the barren temple that has rejected the God's Messiah. When Jesus curses in verse 14, he was acting as office role as prophet. He's saying a fruitless Israel, he's casting judgment upon them and condemning them and casting judgment. See, what's happening here, guys, I want you to understand this, is this text of Jesus cursing the fig tree is not by itself. It's a story that sandwiches Jesus casting out the people, flipping out of the temple. So you have to understand the cursing of the fig tree 
in light of the sandwich story of the temple that he casts out. You guys with me so far? So Jesus is not acting as a petulant child. Instead, he's acting like an Old Testament prophet of old, of one of the anointed offices that he holds. He's the prophet. He's speaking into, he's casting judgment. He's very much the Jeremiah and the Isaiah saying, woe is due the nation. Woe to the temple. You're supposed to be bearing fruit. You're supposed to have life. Yet you have no life. Maybe on the outward appearance you have leaves. So from a distance, it looks like you have life. But there's no fruit being born. Now I'm going to take a really quick sidestep here and say this. Can I say maybe this is a word that God has called in many of our churches today. Maybe our church now. Maybe many churches out there. Maybe we have a lot of leaves. But are we bearing fruit? Maybe there's a lot of programs happening. Maybe there's a lot of things happening. Maybe it looks like we're healthy and fruitful, but are there any fruit when we go, when we're hungry, when people are hungry around us, when they need something so much more than programs? Do we have any fruit to offer? Guys, I I want you to know that the threefold anointed role of offices of prophet, priest, and king came together perfectly in the anointed one, that is Jesus. So we often focus on him as king, because right, we're like, oh, Jesus is king, he's in charge, yay. And we're also focusing him as priest. We're like, yay, Jesus, you know, he prays for us, he sacrificed himself for us, yay, that's awesome. We often forget him as prophet, right? Especially when it comes to ourselves. There's a lot of people out there who focus him on his prophet when they go to other people, right? Cast judgment on that person. But Jesus is called, and I want you to get this, this is not out of spite or vindictiveness. This is out of... Uh, Out of love for us, he wants us to look at our situation, our current tree, and see, are we bearing fruit? This ties into John chapter 15, where it says, apart from me, you can bear no fruit. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And apart from me, you can bear no fruit. The question then comes into, it's not one of prophetic judgment. It's one of prophetic pronouncement. And this pronouncement then should say, then, if we're not bearing fruit, are we connected to Jesus? It's a call back. If you're not bearing fruit, then come into my arms. Be connected to me, the vine. Do you hear the difference? There's a prophetic judgment that we can go around and be like, oh, look what, there was a guy on campus at University of Florida, and he'd always used to have like the big sign that had like a picture of hell, and be like, you're all gonna burn. I mean, it's kind of like the premise that he would always say. He'd walk around. I don't know if you guys had that at like UNC or other schools, but there was that guy who would always do that. He'd walk around, and he'd see like a girl in shorts and be like, She's a slut and she's going to hell and stuff like that. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, shut up. You know, but that's what he would do. He would go around and he would, he would do stuff like that. And, and so I would, I would literally just be freaking out. But that's what people think when they think of prophet. That's what their image in their head is, right? But the prophet that Jesus was, he says, you're missing the fruit. You're not bearing fruit. Come into the vine. It's the one of reaching as a pronouncement followed up with, this is the way you bear fruit. Does that make sense? That's the side note here, but I want you to see this. So then Jesus, chapter, uh, verse 15, Jesus enters the temple, and it says this. He began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything within the temple. In other words, Jesus flips out. He goes crazy. I mean, this doesn't, give off enough of the kind of the imagery, you know? He doesn't, the other, others, um, in the other gospels, it talks about he actually makes a whip, 
right? This is, he goes crazy. He goes nuts. He's, he literally steps up and flips out. And he gets so, he, he does such almost acts that you would think, how in the world is Jesus doing that? Because most of his whole life, he comes across as this very gentle, meek man, right? You know, anybody that wants to come to him, he heals. He says that the children come to him. You know, he's never shown himself to, to show outbursts up to this point of anger. But then comes outbursts of anger. Now, it wasn't an outburst of uncontrolled anger. He knew exactly what he was doing. He overturned the money changers. He flipped over the tables. He stopped those who were selling pigeons. Why was he so angry? What drove him to this point? I'm going to have two reasons I want to share with you guys why he was so angry why he intentionally did what he did, why Jesus flipped out. You guys ready? Number one, he flips out to show his passion for the nations. He flipped out to show his passion for the nations. And then number two, he flipped out to, show, to bring forth the end of religion. I'll say that again. One, he flipped out to show his passion for the nations, and two, he flipped out to, to bring forth the end of religion. This incident is kind of ambiguous by itself. Many people have thought that Jesus was simply kind of protesting commercialization. You know, this view is like this idea of, oh, the temple should be for only religious activities, so we shouldn't have bake sales outside of the church, or um, they've got to separate this kind of idea of church and marketplace and kind of make it totally separate. But Mark makes it clear by placing the temple incident within the two halves of the fig story, that he sees Jesus as something, to- actually something different. It's a dramatic acting out of this parable of judgment. This is Jesus' way of an- announcing God's condemnation to the temple itself and all that had become in the people and the kingdom of Israel. Now here's the key to understanding this. There's a biblical quotation that Jesus makes. Verse 17, it says this. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is actually from two different sources in the Old Testament. The first part is from Isaiah. The second part is from Jeremiah, right? House of Prayer for All Nations is from Isaiah. And the second part is from Jeremiah. And here's what basically this is saying in this temple. Is, it's looking back to hearing what the temple is supposed to be. Is that when you look back, um, what, um, what Jesus is saying is that this, is, this word ethnos, this, this is a place where the temple is supposed to be a place where it's a blessing and a light for all nations, where God made this temple, and yes, it dwelt among the Israelite people, but it was supposed to be a hope to the Gentiles. But instead, what was happening was where the Gentiles were supposed to come, where the Gentiles were supposed to come and pray, commerce was happening. They were taken advantage of. They were not allowed and given space to pray. And this idea of robbers, den of robbers, in Jeremiah, um, according to N.T. Wright, the word robbers in that day wasn't a word for thief of the ordinary sense, but for revolutionaries, those today we would call the ultra-Orthodox, plotting and ready to use violence to bring about their nationalist dream. In other words, what Jesus, this charge against his fellow Jews, was that Israel's whole job, its vocation, was to be a light of the world, a hope to the Gentiles. But we can see something totally different happening amongst the Israelite people. And what we see symbolized here in the temple. You see, Jesus' contemporaries had organized things and had come to a point where it was not welcome to the other nations. As a matter of fact, it was excluding of them. 
See, what the temple was supposed to be was a place of prayer for the whole nations, the people of Israel. What they were supposed to be as a nation were people who bring forth light to the world for all nations. It says in, in Isaiah. But what ended up happening is by having the Gentile court where the Gentiles are allowed to come and pray, being a place of commerce and oppression, it's basically saying we're closing off the light that we have to the world. What, what made Jesus, I almost said it, I, what, really like angry, like what made Jesus so angry, what riled him up so much was not just his commercialization. It was literally that the whole purpose of Israel was to show the Gentile world the hope that they had in God. But instead what they were saying was making it more exclusionary than ever. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? What made Jesus so angry was the place where they were supposed to pray and receive and build relationship with God turned into a place where they could be taken advantage of and oppressed. What made Jesus angry was his exclusionary, only for us, religion. Now, does that say a word for us today huh, in America? Right? I really believe when we see often our faith lived out in America and other parts of the world, we see it as a, I hate to say it, I, we often see, what was it, uh, the Martin Luther King quote that the most segregated place in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning or something like that? I misquoted that, but something along those lines, yes? We see often that our religion has often been exclusionary. We often see it throughout the, throughout the history of Christianity, often in the world, is that it's been exclusionary. We've often used our faith. And this is exactly what the Israelite people are doing here. They're using it as a, as a means of becoming exclusive. Look how special we are. Rather than being outreaching for the nations. And this is what made Jesus so angry. Think about that. The very thing that makes Jesus so angry that he's willing to flip tables and make it a huge public kind of example of a statement out of it then shouldn't we be so passionate about the opposite of it? Right? If something that can make me that angry, can I tell you, like, certain things that can make me angry. If I heard of somebody hurting a child, that gets me angry. I'll be honest with you. I get so angry. If somebody hurt a child, I'm like, oh, I get riled up. I mean, I just, I, I, like, you know, kind of turn into the Hulk or something. I get really angry. But then the, the opposite makes sense, though, because then I love people who are ministering and helping children. Does that make sense? And so if we know the thing that makes Jesus angry, we know being exclusionary, take, keeping the gospel away from the Gentiles or from others, then shouldn't the very opposite motivate us? Right? We should then say, like what the early Christians did, the gospel should be for all peoples. And we should reach all nations with the gospel. The second point, the second reason why Jesus was so angry was one, he wanted to show and bring forth the end of religion. I'm going to give you a little walkthrough of the temple, but when Jesus, when you walked into the temple, when you first walked in the door, first area you got to was the court of the Gentiles, the nations. And this is where only the, the, the non-Jews can go. This is one of the biggest divisions of the temple. You had to get through to get to the rest, and where, this is where all the business operations of the temple were. And when I say business operation, no exaggeration, this is where thousands of people would come, especially during this time, and they would buy, sell animals at hundreds of locations. This is the area of about 30 football fields. And the historian Josephus tells us that at one Passover week, 25,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple courts. 
And this is the place where the Gentiles were supposed to find God. They were supposed to be praying. So he turns it all over. It's, he, he, he yells and he gets flipped out. He gets mad. But why is he doing this? He's literally shocking the people there. Because like I said, on one hand, it was popularly believed that when the Messiah, there were some people who believed when the Messiah showed up that he'd actually kick out all the Gentiles. Because who was conquering them? Gentiles. The Israelite people were being conquered by the Romans and by the Greek. They were conquered by all these foreign peoples. So there were some people who believed this nationalistic belief that when the true Messiah came, what the true Messiah would do is he'd be like, all right, get out of here, all you Gentiles. We're now in charge. So when Jesus is sitting here and he's doing, he's making his statement, first statement by saying, this is a house of prayer for all nations, people are like shocked. Some people thought he was the Messiah. Remember they were waving the palm branches as they came in. And they're shocked. You're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is all nations? What's going on? But they're also shocked because what he was doing was even more radical than that. What he's literally saying is, I'm throwing out the old system. I'm throwing out the idea of animal sacrifices. I'm throwing out the sacrificial system. I am, not only can Gentiles come and know God, but you know what? They can come and be clean before this God. They're not the pigs. They're not the dogs anymore. How is that possible? Only by throwing out the system and fulfilling it can it be possible. You see, the history of this tabernacle, what what the object, the main object of worship in this temple is this tabernacle, and it starts at the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, it's where the very dwelling place of God was. And he dwelt, and he was in the presence of God. And in the presence of God, death, decay, evil, and perfection didn't exist. In the presence of God, there was shalom, which literally means peace. It was right. The world was right. It was flourishing, total fulfillment. This was sanctuary. This was shalom. But then human beings decided to kind of build their lives on other things. We decided to not make God our center, but everything else, ambition, pride, our center, our lusts, our desires of the flesh. And so we left the sanctuary. And when we did and we turned and when we left the sanctuary, something happened. We, when we forsaken the God that we were made for and made cisterns, broken sisters that can hold no water, when that transition happened, the Garden of Eden, very sanctuary of God, an angel came. And he came with a flaming sword. Genesis 3.24. And he literally st- stood at the gate. And he says, guys, here's the deal. You cannot come back into this place because you've forsaken it, because you've wronged it, because you've turned away from it, because this is where truth and justice and beauty and perfection lives, and you've forsaken all of that. And so this flaming sword that prevents us from being back into the presence of God because the presence of God is so holy. And this major wrong happened that cannot be done. This major wrong can happen. Guys, I told you often a story. Uh, I had some friends of mine who were working with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And while working with Wycliffe, they were in this area in an island where uh, he was, this, this man was learning the language, trying to create, learn the language, create a written language, and translate the Bible into that language. But while he was in this place, he was trying to figure out a way to find a, a word to translate the word ransom for many. This idea of ransom. So he was talking to his friend, who's kind of his language partner, and his friend was like, well, it sounds like this. In our, in our custom, in our, you know, if somebody's, say, knocking down a tree, right, and as you're knocking down a tree, let's just say accidentally this tree falls down and hits somebody and kills somebody. Then that person then who did the killing, who knocked down the tree, would go into his house, lock the door, right, and then the person who died, who was wronged, their family would all come around and surround the house. And they surround the house kind of demanding justice. 
And what would happen was the guy's family who was in the house, who's, who did the knocking down of the tree, they would come and bring goods. They'd bring like food or supplies or gifts. And they'd bring gifts and lay it in front of the family that was wronged. And they'd build it up so high, and finally they'd say this one word. I can't remember the word now. I wish I knew. It sounds so much cooler if I remember the word. But they would say this one word, and it meant basically enough. The debt is paid. Enough. The debt is paid. He can go. He's good. And so that guy was like, yes! That's the word. That's the word. Jesus paid it. It's enough. The debt is paid. And here's the deal. We, we have this debt that needs to be paid. We've forsaken God, what we were made for, and our access to him is denied right now by a flaming sword, an angel with a flaming sword. And there's a debt that needs to be paid, and we can't pay it. We have nothing in our ability, nothing in us that can pay off this debt. And no one can survive that sword. That sword is too much for us. And here's the temple. The temple then is in the middle of this, when we don't deserve it, when we've been separated from the very presence of God, God still said, in my grace and in my love, I will still give you my presence in this form. Promising you that one day, for some strange reason, I'm going to promise you that one day my glory will somehow fill the whole earth. It doesn't make sense. We did nothing to deserve it. How in the world, then, us who are separate, us who are broken, who've denied this guy, how could his glory come and fill the whole earth? So this temple came, and in this temple was, in the middle of the temple was a holy of holies. And it's this area where the very dwelling place of God was. And once a year, a high priest can go in. And only then if there's a major sacrifice done and purification done beforehand. It was all symbolic. This is all symbolic of the atoning work that was to come later. It was partial. It was a hint of the glory that was to come. There's this place in Zechariah, right where Jesus was actually quoting, when Mark happened, when Mark's quoting that he's going to come in on a donkey. It says, your Messiah, your king, will come back gentle and riding on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Then the prophecy goes on like this. It says, when the Messiah comes back on that day, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty as the sacred bowls in front of the altar. And even the Canaanites will be the house of the Lord Almighty. What literally it's saying is that in that day, every pot will be holy. These are these bowls that they would be placed out in the holy spots and um, that only the certain ones would be considered holy. But on that day, every pot will be considered holy. Not only every pot, but it also said even the Canaanites will be in the house of the Lord Almighty. Canaanites were hated foreigners to the Jews. The whole world was going to become the Holy of Holies. The whole world will be filled with the glory and presence of God again. Psalm 96 says, The trees of the wood will sing for the joy before the Lord when he comes to rule the earth. Isaiah 55 says, The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. The Bible is saying this, and this is, this is from Tim Keller, and I love this. The Bible is saying everything in the world is sleeping. They're just shadows or what they would be in the presence of the Creator. Where the presence of God brought by the Messiah covers the world again. The trees and the hills are going to clap and dance, so alive will they be. If the trees and the hills in the presence of God will be able to clap and dance, what will you be able to do? What will I be able to do? What will it be like? It's this very idea that the world, ever since it was separated and broken, by us forsaking him, that there's a flaming sword separating us from the very paradise of being in full shalom peace with God in the garden. But he, we've been given pictures, we've been given hints of it, but one day his glory will flood the earth 
And we all have access. I love, Tim Keller goes on later to talk about how C.S. Lewis has this quote. It says, we want something else which can hardly be put into words. That is the why in the oldest stories we have people of the air and the earth and the water with nymphs and elves. That is why our lifelong longing is to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off is no mere neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. For if we take the scripture seriously, God will one day give us the morning star. The trees in the hills will sing with us. And so the ancient myths and poetry, so false as history, may be truth as prophecy. What that literally means, and this is the thing that I often make fun of myself for, my wife makes fun of me a little bit for too, because I have this really crazy overactive imagination, and I love the stories where there's spirits in the airs, and there's nymphs in the trees, and there's elves in the woods, and basically there's, there's life everywhere. The beautiful poetry of this idea of the earth sings a song. This very beautiful poetry of this idea that the earth, as we glimpse it now, is, is, is dulled. It's not as bright as it should be. And so our imaginations, our, our heart's longings, the stories and the poetries that we tell each other and then we speak to ourselves, that's because we know, because of the image of God in us, the divine created given to us, we know that it's dulled. It's, it's dim. It's dimly lit right now. But we profess that one day, right now it seems like false history, but one day this is prophecy. That the one day the world will be as it should. That one day that the hills will sing, the rocks will cry out. One day the earth will see as bright as it should be, as beautiful as it was made to be before the fall, when we're in perfect shalom peace with God. One day when all pain and suffering ends. One day the earth as it should be. This is a profession of that. And the Messiah is the one who is going to bring that. See, here's the deal. Here's what happens when the Messiah comes. He literally comes before the, the, the flaming sword that separated us from that one day. He came before the flaming sword that separated us from the Garden of Eden. He came before the flaming sword and he took upon himself the blow of the flaming sword. And he gave us access now. And in that blow, the Messiah died, but the sword was broken. And in that blow, that's why the Bible says when Jesus was crucified, the veil was torn in two. Jesus came and he flipped over the temples, he flipped over the sacrifices, he, he did act it out in such anger because he said, guys, what was separating us, this temple worship that was separating us, what, what, it, what it was pointing to was this atoning picture of one day someone somehow will pay the debt of the flaming sword. That is me. And I'm flipping it all upside down. Jesus flipped out so he could flip out all of religion. Jesus flipped out so he says, no longer will religion get you any, no longer will this sacrifice do anything because I was the ultimate fulfillment of that sacrifice. I am the ultimate atoning sacrifice for you. So that now you have access to the garden. Now you are not only access to the garden, but you are now instrumental in having the world be seen the way it's supposed to be seen. You are now instrumental. Here's what I love, guys. The image that I want you to have is this. Right now, we'll say we're looking at a world, and let's say, the light, let's say we're looking at a room. Let's say we're in an art museum, and we're looking at a piece of art, but the light's really dark, right? I mean, it's, it's just, the, it's really dim, and it's this beautiful piece of art, but you just can't really see it very well because it's dark. You can see that it's beautiful. You're like, oh, man, when I really concentrate, there's some beautiful parts to it. But I just don't see it. What Jesus is now calling us to be 
is now the ones with a light to shine. And they cast it upon that beautiful painting. And when we shine it upon the beautiful painting, now we can be like, oh, wow. I didn't see that. Look how beautiful that is. Look how incredible that is. And you shine more. And you see, look how beautiful, look how beautiful. And one day, there will come a day when we see fully all the light shining and we see the beautiful masterpiece, the beautiful creation work that God has made and we dwell in it and live in it forever. But till that day, the calling upon us is to flip everything else upside down. And say, let's shine the light into the darkest of places. Jesus flips out because he wanted to show the death of religion. He wanted us to understand and to see that what he does is takes the flaming sword on our behalf and then says there is no longer separation. You now have full and complete access to God. And your role now is to shine the light so that the world can see what the world was made to be. Guys, there is a psychiatrist named Scott Peck and he was writing a book about religion and faith. At one point he says this, how do you defeat evil? I don't really understand it, but I do know whenever you see evil defeated, somebody has to sacrifice. The, this passage in the scripture is literally saying there was somebody who sacrificed once for all. There was one who sacrificed once for all so that we can be children of God. I love the fact that Jesus flipped out. I love the fact that he was so passionate about reaching all nations so that I can be known by him. I love the fact that he flipped out because no longer can I, no longer do I need to question whether or not I can be righteous and have access to this God. I love the fact that he flipped out that no longer do I have to worry, am I doing good enough deeds? Do I sacrifice enough animals? No, no longer do I have to be, no longer is this just a picture of a, what's going to happen. It is, what, it is a picture of what happened. Do you get that? <clears throat> the sacrifice at the temple, it was all supposed to be a picture of what the coming Messiah is going to do. The sacrificial system is just a picture of the holiness of God and what Christ the Messiah is ultimately going to do in our behalf. But no longer do I have to just have a picture now. Instead, I have the true sacrifice and full access to God. I thank God that he flips it all upside down. And I thank God that he also flips our world upside down. But in doing this now, the gospel states and the gospel news is this. That the world we look at is not ruled by the rules that we think this world says. We're not dependent upon the, the typical um, kind of this truth that we discover in our day-to-day dimly lit world. You know, no longer are we dependent, you know, in, in a world that we live in, one of the things that you'll discover quickly, one of the rules is a dog-eat-dog world. You guys heard that before? Not a dog-eat-dog, but a dog-eat-dog world, right? I didn't say anything. But what, that's one of those rules that we learn in, in our society and our culture. But you know what? Jesus flips that idea upside down. And he says, in this place, we get to show a world that's not a dog-eat-dog world, but we get to show a world where the lamb sacrifices. And I mean, the lion becomes a lamb. You know, we live in this world, and we see that in this world, if you work hard and you do well, there's the best chance you have the success, that it's more important that you're more successful than the other person, that you need to put others down, that you need to lift yourself up. And we see that in this world, though, the world that Jesus talks about, when he flips it all upside down, he says that the last shall become first, and the first shall become last. 
He does a whole world flipping. When he flips his whole system upside down. And he calls us, this is the crazy thing, those of us who denied and who, who led to the very separation to God, he calls us now to be instruments to shining a light in this dark world so that this dimly lit world can now be seen bright and beautiful. And may we continue to do that. That is what kingdom advancement is, by the way. Can I tell you something? I, I, I'll say this again. God made the world beautiful. He made the world incredible and beautiful. But here's the problem. We've made it dark. Right? There are situations in this world that we've made it dark. We've dimly lit. When we advance the kingdom of God, his very rule and reign, when we say we advance the kingdom of God, his rule and reign on the earth by making disciples, we don't just say, oh, because we want to see justice flow on the streets. And no, what we're doing is we're not rediscovering justice. We're showing a true source of justice. We're not rediscovering freedom. We're showing what freedom really comes from. We're not rediscovering beauty. We're showing that God already made it beautiful, but we're not seeing it well. You guys get that. There's a difference. It's not on you to create freedom. It's not on you to, to defeat oppression. It's not on you to make beautiful. It is on Jesus who made it. You're just casting a light so that the world can see. Does that make sense? You get that? So may we continue to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus, you flipped out. God, we thank you that you were so passionately in love and passionately pursued for the nations that you flipped out and got so angry when the, the exclusionary message was given. God, that you cared so much that you wanted a place to pray for all nations and all peoples. So we thank you for reaching out to us because that means us right now in this place. And God, we thank you that you flipped out because we know that this picture was poorly being seen, but now after you flipped out, we can see that you brought an end to what we consider religiosity, what we consider just pure religion, but instead you brought forth relationship and access and connection to you. God, we thank you that you bore upon yourself the flaming sword. The sword that separated us from God, that separated us from the world as we're supposed to see it, that separated us from the garden. God, you took it upon yourself. You bore the sword. And in that bearing process, you died upon the cross, but you did not remain dead because you broke the sword. You conquered death and hell and all that is, in, all that is there. God, because your love and your power is so much greater. So God, may we now be those who God, continue to flip the world out. And those who shine light in the dark place so that they can see what the world really looks like, the beauty in it, the way creation was meant to be, and shalom and peace with you. In Jesus' name.